0: Hello and welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is Episode 7, Shrieking Refuge, Inner Voices, Joy Can Flow From Breaking. My name is Masi Asari. There are three parts to this podcast, a brief reading from a text on voice, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our time of COVID-19, and a vocal exercise from a practitioner. This week, I begin with a brief reading from the book After the Party, A Manifesto for Queer of Color Life by Joshua Chambers-Letson. Then I speak with performance scholar, composer, and singer Elena Elias Krell, To close, singer, composer, and musical theater artist Abigail Bankson shares a wonderful vocal exercise. I also want to give the credits now for a few clips of interstitial music featured on this episode. First, Nina Simone with I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. Then, Not Not My Baby by Hen in the Fox House. And also a song by the Banksons from their 2015 album, Later Made Into a Musical, Hundred Days, a song called Bells. And finally, before we jump in, I want to mention quickly that in one of the conversations on this episode, the word epistemologies comes up. And I didn't do a riff in the moment, but it's a word from European philosophy that just means more or less ways of knowing. So bodily epistemologies, actually something that European philosophy has tended to devalue, um, bodily epistemologies are ways of knowing by and through being in one's body. Okay, let's do it.
1: I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear.
0: The guests I host on this episode speak with me about, first, in the case of Elena Elias Krell, the practices of composing and singing in a way that makes space for the disjuncts between inner and outer voices, allowing for vocal sound and embodied practice as queer of color critique, and second, with Abigail Bengson, about making space for grief and the fullness of feelings such that a voice can break as if into a vessel, the way a singer can break their voice in a way that it is not dangerously shattered, but more expansively held. I want to frame these conversations by reading from the iridescent writing of performance scholar Joshua Chambers Letson, also a colleague of mine at Northwestern University. Josh's newest book, After the Party, A Manifesto for Queer of Color Life writes into the way that queer sociality and performance can be a means of exacting greater freedom from an unfree world, demanding the possibility for survival by refuting the flat false equivalencies of capitalism. It is also, in his words, words that revoice a prescient articulation from the late scholar José Munoz. Performance is what allows minoritarian subjects to take our dead with us to the various battles we must wage in their names and in our names. And After the Party, Josh attests, quote, I wrote the book for and to my missing friends and to the people they left behind, but it is written for all people of color and especially queers of color, trans people of color, and women of color. It is a book for the still living recounting the story of people like us for whom performance is a refuge and a means of surviving and producing something the singer wishes she knew how to feel, quote. He's speaking here of Nina Simone's famous song, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. The party can be a kind of a vessel, a holding, that allows for what Elena Aliya spoke about with me as the willingness of already so vulnerable people to become even more vulnerable in the interest of healing, in the space of queer community. I want to share with you an incredibly open and deeply felt passage from the book's preface, which takes the form of an address to Josh's and my late professor and friend, Leading queer studies and performance theorist and longtime faculty member in the NYU Performance Studies department, Jose Esteban Munoz. Professor Munoz passed away unexpectedly with violent suddenness in 2013. While later parts of Josh's book work elegantly through Nina Simone and her vocal and pianistic performances, including her practices as a vocal coach and singer, I want to read this early passage addressed to Jose and enlivened by the vocal sound of performance artist Nao Bustamante. In a book which is by turns lyrical and incisively theoretical, I am drawn to this passage for the way it carries the direct force and affect of vocal sound and of voices doing the work together. So here we go. But soon enough, the performance began now stood at the front of the space, dropping the coat, exposing her body to the room with a skinny bikini-esque bottom and top, high-heeled boots, and the lengthy veil reaching down to her midsection. She danced enthusiastically to a vintage Spanish language beach song before setting the record to a slower, sultrier number. Laying on the platform, torquing her body in a host of directions and pulling a microphone to her face, she sang, but instead of singing, she was screaming. Something between a Darby crash or Alice bag rendition of Somewhere My Love and the howl of indescribable grief. After I got the call that you were dead, I sat in the middle of the street for a few minutes. Early morning Chicago traffic driving around me before calmly walking back home and through the front door where I began to howl. A few years later, I sit in Now's Los Angeles studio and ask her about that performance. All performance is an expression of pain, she told me. It's kind of like a primal scream. As she screamed the song, her voice was frayed, shredding at its outermost limit and shrieking the lyrics into the broken air. Some day we'll meet again, my love. A lie, perhaps, but the truth was harder to bear, and as if to help her carry the burden, some people in the audience began to shriek along with her. She was bringing them together. Performance is like hosting a party, she says. Welcome my guest scholar for this episode. I guess I should say scholar and practitioner, Elena Elias Krell. Elena Elias Krell is assistant professor of women's studies at Vassar College. They have received prestigious postdoctoral fellowships through the Cesar Chavez Postdoctoral Fellowship Program at Dartmouth and the Consortium for Faculty Diversity at Vassar. Krell holds a PhD in performance studies from Northwestern University, specializing in gender and sexuality studies, performance, and popular music studies. Their scholarship has been published in outlets such as the Journal of Popular Music Studies, Oxford University Press's Trans Bodies, Trans Selves, the Oxford Handbook of Voice Studies, and the Rutledge Handbook of Communication and Gender. In addition to scholarly work, Krell is a clairvoyant and tarot card reader as well as a songwriter and performer with an active music project entitled Hen in the Fox House. This band, a collaboration with Jem Violet, draws on wide-ranging influences including opera, microtonality, R&B, indie pop, and blues. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me.
0: Yay! I'm glad <laughs> this finally worked out. It's been... Um, It's been it's been a full and complicated month. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Uh, and and I'm I'm really grateful that we're able to have this conversation today, Um, especially because you bring together both your practice and your scholarship in really beautiful ways. And I'm excited to delve into that with you.
2: Thank you. I'm really honored to talk about it with you.
0: Cool. So when we
2: spoke last
0: month, um, you mentioned to me that you recognize that this time of isolation that so many people. Are going through and, and still experiencing in some ways uh, to different degrees but that this time of isolation can serve as a time of unearthing that has the potential to be really meaningful for a creative process and i know that as a composer you work with a composition partner i think in a way where you each compose mostly separately but perform together is that did i get that right
2: yeah that's right um jem okay. and i Actually, we both went to Oberlin, um, and we were there at the same time. Um, I was in the the double degree program in the college and in the conservatory, and uh-huh. um, and she was um, in the in the conservatory. And uh, we never met until um, I moved here five oh, years wow. ago in the Hudson Valley. <laughs> wow! Uh, and and then we started. Um, you know, we've written a little bit together, but we're mostly we're kind of strongest when we come together with things that we've each written, and then yeah. the music transforms from collaborating um, and, and playing together.
0: Amazing, amazing. And you have, I feel like I remember back in the the day, I heard you give a talk at um, NYU in the music department, I think, when I was yeah. doing my doctoral work in performance studies. You mentioned, and I think this is referenced maybe in your, in your dissertation, that you, didn't you tour as a musician as well? I mean, haven't you sort of been, in this
2: music life for quite a long time? Yeah, touring was, like, was actually my main methodology for the dissertation, mm-hmm. um, and continues to be um, a primary methodology for me. Um, and then the, the music part kind of coincided with that. I actually started to compose my own music um, and do my own touring about the same time as I started graduate work mm-hmm, um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: so it, it kind of worked out really well because I ended up writing about some of the people I would tour with and then yeah. I would end up having opportunities to perform with the people that I was writing about uh, so it was kind of like a an ideal performance studies moment yeah. right where the practice and the theory um, are are really interwoven and, mm-hmm. and for me coming out of um, a bachelor's in music a master's in music it to be able to to have that element of um, embodied scholarship um, was really um, not just useful, but kind of necessary. Sure. um, um, Patrick Johnson was my Mm -hmm. main advisor and um, he and all of the other faculty too, were just very, um, you know, just at at the core of their research is this idea of how important embodiment is and, and, That part of the work that we're doing, um, especially as queer of color scholars, is kind of centering, centering different bodily epistemologies, and kind of just continuing to to think through and with the body. Yeah.
0: So cool. Maybe do. Is there anything else you want to say? uh, Would you want to say a little bit more about your creative practice uh, in music and and as a performer, especially right now during the pandemic, and how? uh, I don't know. Are there ways that socially distanced life has affected The kinds of music making and vocalizing um that you might otherwise have been
2: doing yeah i think there's a couple of things that just came to mind one of them is um you know for many in this time it is not an increased time of quiet right and i want to be sure that i kind of um give uh respect to that reality and also to the privilege that i have of um being where I am, which is a you know being isolated in my own house um, in upstate New York in in a mm-hmm. less densely populated area. So, but having said that, um, for me and I and I think probably for other people, there was something about the slowing down of everything mm-hmm. um, or many things that mimicked the process or kind of amplified in my mind, the process of composing mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And the process of, of listening. Um, and, and for me, the composition process when it's really, when it's really kind of going <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, feels like, it feels like a practice of, of listening, mm-hmm. as much as um, transcribing, right? The, the listening aspect of, this pandemic has been really interesting because it's for me personally it's just brought up a lot of stuff that I had kind of Mm -hmm. um, had been pushed down I guess for lack of a better term you know and critiques of psychoanalysis and repression repressive theory notwithstanding like there there was something um, I think a lot of scholars can relate to just the the intensity, right, of, of graduate school and then the job search and then getting mm-hmm. the job. And um, there's just not a lot of space built in. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to the embodied, the importance of bodily epistemologies and, mm-hmm. and making space for practices, right? But there's not a lot of space in institutionalized yeah. life for psychic life or for emotional life. And so when all of this kind of slowed down, it first was really just intense, um, and difficult, um, for me. And then after things started bubbling up, I realized like, oh, no, this is a good thing. Like this is Mm. all of, all of this is can now kind of clear, so to speak, you know, as long as I'm kind of paying attention to it and, um, and what a gift, you know, again, Mm -hmm. I don't want to, um, make light of this, of this really, you know, life and death situation that a lot of people are in, but, yeah, yeah. but for, for those of us um, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's uh, mutually exclusive also with um, with a practice of gratitude, right. For sure. whatever um, we can be grateful for. And, sure. and for me, yeah, I'm just grateful for, I'm grateful, honestly, for the, the opportunity to slow down and um, to listen to my, inner voice. It sounds a little cheesy, but <laughs> to no, be able to no. listen to yeah, that yeah. kind of the, the, you know, the different aspects of emotional trauma that, that surface mm-hmm. so that they can be dealt with. And, and to bring it back to the musical practice, I think that for me, that's the most fun aspect of composing
1: mm-hmm.
2: is listening to see what I hear. Right. And, yeah. and we were talking a little bit in our earlier conversation sure, about yeah. the composer's voice. Absolutely. And I just think that's completely the wrong, even phrase, right? That Okay. Because I think a composer's voice can only be heard, like, once, like, once someone dies, then maybe you could say what their composer's voice was. But, <laughs> but like, while they're still alive yeah, and so composing, interesting. I think it's, it's not, it's not like, you, you can't say that that's your voice, but I mean, this is just, right. Sure, 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 this, this is opinion, your take, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that the, the, the idea that a composer has a voice, I think is um, is something that as a composer is kind of just not useful to, to think about.
0: It's interesting, you know, I think um, a couple things come to mind, this is so great. Um, I have two like thoughts that are competing to be articulated in my brain. Um, to the point of um, slowing down, I think um, I have felt that as well. A little bit of a sense that because I am also I'm a junior faculty member, um, and there is such a push to be productive to in certain kinds of ways, to publish in certain kinds of ways. Um, I have a little note taped to my cupboard that says, you are not a machine, you are a person with a spirit. Mm. (laughs) From my very
2: first (laughs) quarter
0: on faculty. Um, And I think part of my impulse for doing this podcast was I wanted to do something that um, wasn't... Just productive for the sake of being productive in the ways that I thought I was expected to be, um, and it is a it is a kind of listening for me to get to talk to brilliant scholars and thinkers and makers and and artists like yourself and just let all of that expertise kind of wash over me and see what I might then make of it. So I think that that practice of listening and in, in a in an effort of it strikes me that there is a there's a critique of, of capitalism. There's a critique, like I personally feel like I want to know what it is that I'm going to make and produce without just feeling pressed into service, um, in service of other people's expectations for that, especially right now when um, the structures that seemed to, to sort of keep <laughs> the wheels of capitalism turning are, are, are crumbling in so many ways and in so many obvious ways. Um, due to the pandemic. So that was one thing that came to mind to me, is the ways that um, this deep acts of listening um, and unearthing, like you said, can be um, a mode of resistance. And then I totally forgot what the other thing I was going to say was. But let's talk through this composer voice, because this is really, this is great. Uh, we talked, and I think it was, you were just sort of speaking about your practice when we talked last month. and. It kind of just came out as composer voice, and so now I hear I'm hearing from you that as you've reflected on that, it's that phrase feels really really tricky and maybe not the right one to explain what it is that you're listening for when you're in the process of mm. uh, opening up to and making music. Did I get that
2: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I think that's right, um, and it it ties in um, with the critique of capitalism, right? Because this the obsession with the productive individual mm-hmm. there's no there's no utility for capitalism for slowing down right like there's no yeah you know, absolutely i yeah. always say like the music industry is capitalism's answer to music um mm-hmm. you know like i'm mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. i'm less and less sure how much i want to mm-hmm. be a part of it and i and there's so much i mean anti-capitalist um, critique is so useful for musicians um, because there's such an internalization yeah. of the narrative of success mm-hmm. and the narrative of even what it means to be an artist right mm-hmm. um, um, but yeah I think that the attribution of let's just say not even the attribution of a voice to a composer but the the very paradigm of the composer's voice right The yeah. possessive. Composer's
0: voice. Right. I totally agree. I, I feel it's so funny. I was just on a call yesterday with some composers in musical theater. and But it, that phrase is so in use. Like, I hear your voice in this. I hear your voice in that. You know, as a, as a composer. Oh, this is the other thing I was going to say. Um, I remember this story. This story always stayed with me. I don't even know what the reference is. Of Leonard Bernstein, that when he was young, right, the composer-conductor, um, mm-hmm. when he was very young, he said the music... Poured out of him. It just poured out of him. He could just write and write and write and write. And then as he got older, I remember reading this when I was like, I don't know, I want to say like eighteen or something. That as he got older, when he sat down to the piano, he could not write. He was, he was sort of frozen sometimes because he would feel like everything he wrote is this worthy of Leonard Bernstein? Is this worthy of like the whole persona (laughs) that like preceded him in the world? You know? Yeah. And so I think maybe that might speak in some ways to the the detriment or the, I don't know, burden or the, Mm -hmm. the, the, weight that the damage that, that weight that uh, ascribing a composer's voice to something can have to the practice of actually making the music.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That there's a, a beautiful moment in um, Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic, where she's Mm -hmm. talking about the Greek word for um, someone who is, um, exceptionally lucky or um successful in the arts creative Mm -hmm. um and that word is eudaimonia Mm -hmm. and it means well-spirited it means to have a, a good spirits around you and so their their concept of someone um who there was no concept of someone being a genius it was someone had kind of little geniuses around them and so (laughs) it takes the burden off of the person doing the work right because it's not about them um and their individual being it's just something that they have it's something that yeah that chooses to be around them um and i love that concept because it's um you know it's too much for the fragile human ego to bear in either either way Mm -hmm. either being really successful you know by um kind of society standards or or not right, right. either way right. it's um there's violence
0: either way mm-hmm.
2: yeah for for many people you know if not the majority of people so um mm-hmm.
0: if we don't want to use the phrase or if we think about there might be a more useful way to think about this other than you listen for your composer voice and let that manifest. What is it? What is it like when you are going into the practice of finding music or making music um, that other people might say you have composed? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you? What are you listening for? Are you listening for voices? Or what
2: is that experience like? Um, that's such a beautiful question. Um, I often. Uh, this is. I'm like wondering if I want to say this. this is uh this could come off as really um kind of egotistical but it, but I don't mean it that way But sure, sure. I sometime when I was really young I heard um this thing that I think is kind of cliche but this idea that um when Leonardo da Vinci was talking about sculpting that he he said that the the image was inside
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: the stone and all he had to do is kind of take the excess away Mm -hmm, Um, it was mm -hmm. already there Um, and that's how I feel when I'm composing I feel like there is um, I feel like the song already exists and Mm -hmm. the tricky part is getting quiet enough um, with the world and mostly with myself um, to be able to, to listen to it and you know i'll work a song or i'll play it like 12 20 50 times mm-hmm. in a row and every time it becomes clearer and clearer but i'm very sure that the end result is what it was i mean there's no way to <laughs> that but that's kind of yeah so it feels like i'm listening it feels like a great privilege um, and also a great challenge and maybe in some ways responsibility um, uh-huh. But just because I love it so much, not because I think I'm, you know gonna change anyone's life, but mine by, by doing this. but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, um, but hopefully some people will like it, you know. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, it just feels like this really great listening practice. and, and that's part of the reason, a, a big part of the reason why Jem Violet and I gelled um, yeah, yeah. so quickly because she, is one of the best listeners I've ever met in my life, Mm. um, of people, of sounds. Um, and she did a lot of work, um, studying under Pauline Oliveros. Oh, cool. Um, you know, she was also, was one of the best listeners, right? Obsessed with listening. And Jen on Jen's business card, it says, um, It says something like multi-instrumentalist listener. Um, Oh, wow. uh, Like she doesn't like the term composer, um, but but she, I mean, I would call her that. She she has a background in electronic music composition and I was a voice major at Oberland. And that's part of why our paths never crossed, right? Because I was in opera, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) opera land and Mm -hmm. um, Baroque music land and a little bit of like... Electronic composition. But not electronic (laughs) composition. (laughs) That's so cool. Um, Those were like the cool kits, right? I was decidedly (laughs) (laughs) uncool.
3: still am.
0: Is it cool yeah. is a it, is it, is it process. We can all have different experiences unfolding moments of coolness and non-coolness.
2: Um, but she, um, so she's a, a white um, trans femme. Um, uh-huh. I am, um, and she's queer, and I am a queer non-binary person of color. And uh-huh. we, so we found hen in the fox house because it describe so we wanted to try and describe um right the feeling that many um marginalized people have in this world right of being the hens in in the fox house um Mm. and what it feels like to or what it what it means to live with that kind of vulnerability and so the the kind of core thesis which i'm i'm really not sure is gonna work to be totally honest but Mm -hmm. it's the kind of core idea that I'm trying to explore with this project um, and that Jem is too in this kind of in her own way is the kind of resonances between emotional vulnerability, um, mm-hmm. honesty with oneself, right? It takes a lot mm-hmm. of vulnerability to be honest with oneself about um, ways that we're hurting ourselves or others or maybe yeah. things that we wish we didn't do, but have compulsions and can't, right? Like all, just all of the Mm -hmm. kind of self-talk, emotional vulnerability with other people. Mm -hmm. um, So hard, right? Yeah. So all of that with vulnerability to to state-sanctioned violence of all different forms, right? So what it means, and part of what inspired this project is I'm just so sick of, (laughs) of like white new age, people being like oh but we're all the same and we're all connected (laughs) like oh just why is everyone so angry right and I I think now this moment where um this beautiful really um intense um necessary moment where it feels like hopefully that will be less a thing yeah but it's gonna
0: be messy it's it's gonna 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 be messy messy. people's levels of comprehending (laughs) what the actual questions in the air are varies I just That's on my mind this morning, but go ahead.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And as my um, childhood best friend, Kenesha Foster, she's an amazing actress, writer, um, director, educator uh, in LA. Mm -hmm. And she does a lot of work with theater institutions around diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was just, we were talking about this moment and she just said something that I think is so important and beautiful Mm that... um, Yes, this is like a, a quote unquote wake up call, right? It's that's what people are calling it, but it's yeah. also for many people a time of mourning, um, in all kinds of senses, right? Mm-hmm. But but also mm-hmm. in the sense of like what has been lost because, yeah. Yeah. um, well, people were not woken up exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like, like Ten, it isn't, it isn't yeah. like history
0: just started today or last right. week, right? Roles or May 24th. that would have
2: changed people's lives and careers that they didn't get, yeah. um, you know, jobs that they didn't get, um, and yeah. so all of this part of part of what has to be part of the wake up call for you know it can't just be like oh now things are changing it's like okay but also let's think about you know just allow ourselves to also mourn and be angry <laughs> like, like right like this is yeah. if this is yeah. not a moment when people are allowed to be angry then it has zero utility whatsoever and so my hope is that now you know that kind of white new age you know which is part which is like one of the fingers of white supremacy as we know right uh-huh. it's just like like the spirituality as, um, as as a form of violence, as Andreas yeah. talks about in in her book Conquest. Um,
0: yeah, and also that in in making space for this project um, that you and Jim Violet are are working on, you are you are making a different way of being present with the music and according to a different kind of story than the one that says we're all the same.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah, and it's very much inspired by women of color, feminism mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. of all different kinds, um, especially black feminisms, like mm-hmm, Audre mm-hmm. Lorde's idea of, you know, it's the, it's not that we don't know how to handle differences. that we don't know that we are supposed to be celebrating it.
1: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and
2: mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's definitely where our music comes from, right. It's a celebration of queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it took me a long time to realize too that the the reason I didn't write for so long and was so scared to write was because in in so many ways I didn't feel like I deserved a voice. And now I've mm. and now I've come to realize like, oh, that's exactly why I need to be yes. writing. Like that's like my that's voice is right. actually needed. That's, that's why right. I didn't feel like it was necessary <laughs> like, a lot of voice. I didn't is. feel like it was possible. And yeah. people
0: are are working to make sure that you feel that way, that you shouldn't have a voice.
2: Yeah so the reason i'm not sure the emotional vulnerability with vulnerability to state violence overlap necessarily will will work is because like the last thing i want to like tell people who are you know vulnerable to state violence is like just be more vulnerable right because that does sound like it does sound like the white hippies or um people who are like reading um americanized versions of buddhism um like that's just that's just like the thing that they always say but
3: wow.
2: on the other hand like i as one of as someone who identifies as one of those people has, you know experienced some trauma and is trying to heal from it and trying to heal from it in a world that is constantly kind of re-traumatizing um mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: that i do want to be open and i do want to be vulnerable and i do want to have I, I want to have my cake and eat it too, as one of my, as Nick Davis, who um, um, is, if he's still a Northwestern, hi Nick, I believe he is, he's um, in the English department. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He was one of my mentors while I was there. And he's, oh, he cool. he used to say, um, you know, if I had cake, like, why the heck wouldn't I want to eat it? too? You know? <laughs> um, so that's kind of, you know, like, I want to have, um, yeah, I think that, we all have things to learn I believe like this right there's no one who's outside of the kind of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. practice of of needing to stay humble and needing to to keep learning but any of us who have experienced forms of trauma that are um, historically um, buttressed Mm -hmm. right by all of these various institutions Mm -hmm. um, have the right to heal in whatever whatever like idiosyncratic way that looks like um, you know as long as we're not other people as Kate Bornstein says um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like yeah for me that means a kind of radical um, vulnerability and um, to kind of get strong from within right and mm-hmm. and I think about this a lot in regards to voice because I've been told by people that I have a quote-unquote little girl voice and so I I actually wrote an article on hmm. um, just the kind of the silence in the academic literature on the quote unquote little girl voice and on the fact that there's wow. so much written in popular literature about yeah. it. And I kind of talk about the hypocrisy of, of that silence, um, but also like the kind of feminist answer of that, right? That in some ways it's good to not answer yeah. um, a concept that is that problematic. On yep. the other hand, I think it doesn't help to not talk about it. So I've written an article right. um, that um, should be coming out in the next year. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, like I've had like like self identified feminists be like, Oh, I'm not into I'm not into little girl voices, right? Like as if I'm trying to find this. Oh this is fascinating. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating. Um That actually was what I was gonna ask you kind of as we as we get ready to
0: wrap up here. So you've kind of already made this connection is how you I don't know if there really is a literal voice maybe there isn't a literal voice but how you're singing mm, overlays or doesn't Mm. with your listening and composition do you do you sing as you are writing or do you need to be kind of wrapped in silence before you even bring your you know your vocal tract into into the song
2: yeah um thank you for that question um i've been on such a journey with my voice i feel like it's yeah, probably um, would be helpful to your listeners to just say that I um, so I used to be a professional opera singer, semi-professional. Yeah, um, I was singing, you know, I was in a role um, continuously for for three years and. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, while I was singing opera, and I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was kind of that was I considered it my job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and um, and then I went on um, testosterone, um, and
3: mm-hmm. it, my voice
2: dropped uh, about a sixth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's now gone up a little bit to a fourth. But so I've I've been on a real journey with my voice because it yeah. I mean, for a while I had like a man's voice and I was like, this is weird. <laughs>
1: it's gone different places. It's gone different places.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My like internalized transphobia was like coming yeah. out. And then, and then because I think because I was an opera singer, because all of the literature says that vocal change is permanent. Um, for me, it wasn't. It actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, changed. And I don't know if that was because of the elasticity of my chords, but so I really oh. had to, I really genuinely had to learn how to sing again, yeah. even though I was doing it professionally. Yeah, um, I had to learn how to breathe again because, mm-hmm. with testosterone, the cords um, lengthen, but they don't thicken. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Um, when um, people assign male at birth go through puberty, they the cords lengthen and thicken. And thicken, yeah. And so yeah, so um, so there's a whole lot of there's a new dance you have to learn a Dif- new dance. exactly it's a different it's a different dance and i need a lot more a lot more breath now because they're moving uh-huh. more uh-huh. you know it was a quarter of an inch and now it's like a quarter point zero yeah. zero five probably but like it's but it feels completely different um yeah. so and for the long this is just now starting to change and it's been 10 years since yeah. i first went on hormones um Uh, And I'm not on hormones anymore, so that's part of why it probably went back a little bit. But anyway, Mm -hmm. but it's it's for that ten years, the entire time when I was composing, yeah, I was still hearing. My oh, you're hearing voice. a different voice. My inner voice never adjusted to it. So I would write these songs that were written for a soprano, and I had a baritone voice, and I couldn't sing any of them.
0: This is amazing. I'm so <laughs> grateful so that you're walking us through this and, and being just gracious enough to share this story because it's really amazing. This
3: is my pleasure. Um, it's
0: amazing. how I can, I can only imagine how this has affected your practice. And and yeah. and your and your the specificity with which you have to listen to your inner sound.
2: Yes, because I couldn't afford to go. Okay, let me move this a sixth down because it meant you know it's listening so closely. Like it was like riding a bicycle and then like trying to text at the same time. Like I don't know how people do that. Like I <laughs> I, I wasn't able yeah. to think. Like I just had to get it out, and so I would sing in this little whistle tone. So what I have now, and I work with the same vocal coach who I had when I was an opera singer. She's an uh-huh. incredible vocal teacher named That's Jane so cool. Randolph. Um, very cool. In Oakland, California. And she she says that training me is very similar to training a counter tenor. Um, mm. Because I, I mostly sing in my falsetto now. And then I mm-hmm. have this really rich, kind of deeper range. And I, now I love my voice. I feel like I have like a sexy, like, <laughs> of course kind of female sound <laughs> with a with a break in it you know that is yeah and the break must have shifted it's the break is the break well I didn't moved. yeah I didn't have a break before because as a as an mm. opera singer I had one column of sound from the bottom to the top that was how I was trained mm. so um so I had zero break and then I had all of a sudden I had a massive one um now I do feel like I'm starting like it's taken probably Five to eight years, but I I feel like I'm finally I'm finally used to my own voice. Like I find, I'm finally hearing what um, what is actually coming out, which is just such a funny thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but maybe maybe that's maybe that's my voice. Right? It's just um, um, or at least there's some kind of syncing up that's happening there. So yeah. now when I'm writing. Um, it's it's about a third higher than it should be, but that's better than six. <laughs>
0: yeah, so, and it's always a negotiation, probably for ever, for everyone, but in very specific yeah. ways in your own practice, a negotiation between can, is that I always get confused. Can we call that voice that one hears in one's head the subvocalized voice, kind of after Derrida, or does that feel not quite right to you?
2: That is that is what I haven't understood that okay. term to mean too. So mm-hmm. okay. it's not a very intuitive term, right? Like I think we could probably that's true um invent a better one i think you should do that
0: i think you should give us a new new word (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: not that it's my job to ask for
0: things like that but
2: yeah or maybe you will think of something too and you can let me
0: know no um... i won't (laughs) 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 this is great we probably should wrap up soon i've gone on longer than i usually do because i've been so fascinated is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up
2: Maybe just um, if people want to find me or get in touch or mm-hmm. anything, I'm yeah. always, um, I'm always interested to talk about creativity or voice or um, what have you. So mm-hmm. if, if people want to look me up, it's um, heninfox.com um, is my website. Perfect. Thank and I have all my, all my academic work there too. Um, so yeah. you can download articles and stuff like that. So. Amazing. Thank, well, thank you so, so much, much for asking me to 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 be interviewed with you
0: oh thank you this was fabulous this was really really thought-provoking i have a lot to think about today thank you so much thank you Massey.
3: come home to you. you hold them all inside your chest the lonely and the blessed the herb-
0: to welcome my guest practitioner for this episode, Abigail Bankson. Abigail Bankson is a vocalist, performer, and composer. She has appeared on HBO's High Maintenance and toured as a member of the Tune Yards, including an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. She and Sean Bankson are a married, composing, and performing duo, The Banksons. They have appeared at venues across the country and around the world. Three of their singles have been featured on the TV show So You Think You Can Dance. Their theater work includes Hundred Days, The Lucky Ones, Where the Mountain Meets the Sea, Sundown Yellow Moon, Anything That Gives Off Light, Hurricane Diane, You'll Still Call Me By Name, and The Place We Built. The Bengtsons' work has been performed at venues across the U.S. and internationally, including La Jolla Playhouse, New York Theatre Workshop, The Public Theatre, Actors Theatre of Louisville, Ars Nova, Edinburgh Theatre Festival, Two River Theatre, New York Live Arts, and Classic Stage Company. They have received the Jonathan Larson and Richard Rogers Awards and nominations for the Drama Desk, Drama League, and Lucille Lortel Awards. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you so much for joining me.
3: Oh my goodness. I am so truly grateful, (laughs) Masi. Grateful to be in your company today.
0: It's such a pleasure. I admire your voice and your artistry so much. I feel like you have a direct line to spirit. You, Every time I have heard you perform, I was fortunate to meet you last year right around this time when we did a little concert together and I just feel like you and Sean with whom you write and perform have this direct line to spirit and your voice is so stunning. So thank you for joining me.
3: Oh, my goodness. I felt the same hearing you play and sing and speak for the first time. I got that zap of, of kindred feelings <laughs> where your, you know, your aloneness kind of dissipates a little more in the world. And, and I felt really yeah. grateful for that. So
0: oh, amazing. And it's really a joy to talk to you today. The world is terrifying and in its righteous anger and, um, I think the question is how do we hold space for a voice or what does it mean to have a voice and use a voice as we were talking about at a time when voices feel especially dangerous <laughs> in terms of the virus. So anyway, just maybe to open to you, is there anything you want to say about what you've been noticing about using your voice or listening for voices in this time?
3: Oh my goodness. Well, I, I do, you know, we were... We've spoken about this a little, but I, mm-hmm. especially at this moment, I feel the rhythm between singing and silence mm-hmm. being really essential to staying within my um, sort of right purpose mm-hmm. <laughs> and learning and and softening into all of the learning that needs to happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always have to begin from exactly where we are. There's no other place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's sure. no other planet. There's no other family. There's no other community. This Then there's no other body we get to inhabit this time around. man. Yep. So here we are today and what the voice can do is meet that honestly. Mm-hmm. Right? And I do think that if we meet ourselves honestly in the moment that we begin to open ourselves to a more compassionate experience of others, mm-hmm. I do believe in that. Mm-hmm. And and in all of this, it's something I hold on to, very, uh, hold closely to myself. Yeah. And I think part of the opportunity and, and in a strange way to me, for me personally, the responsibility of being a singer mm-hmm. is exploring, honestly, the sort of myriad, um, the big diversity within your own voice.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think Right now I'm thinking in particular, it's always, it's so fascinating to me and quite telling, I think, hmm how much of Western music, certain kind of Western music, I guess, certainly in Mm -hmm. musical theater, has worked really hard to remove the break from
0: the voice. Yes, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. I love it, I'm on
1: board. (laughs) You know what I
3: mean? Yeah. Just that, just to say, the way we tell our stories, the first thing we do Mm -hmm. is we stop breaking Mm-hmm. And, we, and we use this practice, which was explained to me as a one voice practice, right? Mm-hmm. It means that our voice feels consistent from the very low all the way up to the very high, the high that we don't um, change in expression. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have heard incredible musical theater and classical singers who follow those techniques, who, mm-hmm. who do express a diversity of sound within that sort of um, dictum, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So I never want to crap on anybody. <laughs> you know? No, I hear Everything's you. Everything's fertile. Everything's fertile or can be fertile. But I will also say that if I asked most singers I know and certainly students of voice, younger students of voice, to give me an autobiography of their voice, hmm they would begin by saying, here's the time I was first told my voice was wrong because it was full of breaking. Wow. Yeah. I really love the break. <laughs> I yeah. love the moment in a voice that lets the vulnerability in, mm-hmm. that lets the light in, that lets the dark out mm-hmm. I I think it's a holy place of transition. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about how it's you know, it's maybe less obvious as women grow. Um, It's very clear in male-hormoned people, and it's it's beautifully clear as um, some people transition later in life between Mm -hmm. genders. Mm -hmm. That breaking is growing. Mm -hmm. You cannot grow without the break. So I really love living there as a singer. Um, And a big part of my work has been then figuring out and how to break sustainably and how to break in a healthy way
2: for Mm -hmm. myself.
3: And Mm -hmm. as always... The incredible gift of of having a practice like that is, of course, it it feeds. on um, you know, it's it's no different from the work of my of my spirit and the work of me becoming a more useful citizen and a more engaged community member and mm-hmm. softer mother, uh, a stronger wife, uh, and just more closer to the person I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So when um, so thinking
3: it. about a vocal exercise, you know, I I think it's also um, an emotional exercise. Yes. I love that you're saying all this. Can I Yes, yes in? Yes,
1: please.
0: No, this is so great. This is something that I have often, often thought about. And it's so funny because the fact that you would articulate this makes it crystal clear why... I am so drawn to your sound, and in fact, I read in one of my very first episodes of this podcast, which I've started as a way to just kind of, I'm, a, I'm isolating alone, and I didn't want my voice to kind of disappear, um. <laughs> so I uh, have really been gaining a lot from these conversations with other people, um, and starting this podcast kind of just suddenly, during this time, and to think about what it means to have a voice in in this particular historical moment. But in one of my first episodes, I read an excerpt from this book by this um, brilliant black scholar named Fred Moten, whose book is called In the Break, um, and it's about black radical aesthetics. And his whole theory is that um, there's there's an aesthetic where when something is broken, it's also a deepening. Inv- the you know it's called an invagination after sort of all these, all these European philosophers. I think it's like from Derrida, right? Inva- the invaginated cut. But that that when there is a break, there's a when you sort of listen to or experience the world in the context of the break, then you you understand that the break can be a deepening and a widening. Um, and so I love that. I love that. How I love to think about the voice that way. Fred has a really beautiful. Um, in, and full disclosure, he was uh, a faculty member at NYU where I studied and was on my dissertation committee, And is, but is oh just a brilliant human, right? <laughs> I was sort of in awe wow. of him. But he has a beautiful passage that I read a clip of about um, Billie Holiday's voice and the crack mm. in her voice that I really, really love. So anyway, and, and I, I think a lot about this. I have, I've loved to have students play with that maybe a little bit after Bjork, but you do it in so many cool ways. Um, and I think it's... Up, I will just say one other thing that that I was reminded by another professor of mine at NYU who, who passed away, Jose Munoz, a brilliant um, scholar of, of queer studies, a queer theorist. Mm. And he did a lot of work on affect the, the sort of, I don't know why I'm giving this whole speech, but I am. So here oh, we Masi, um, it,
3: it's, it's nourishing me, man. <laughs> Selfishly, please keep going.
0: Yeah. So Jose, uh, who was, just a brilliant scholar and passed sort of very suddenly and uh, a few years back and his, his loss is just felt so, so deeply by those in my field. Um, but I was giving a presentation when I was in graduate school about the break in the voice and how I was teaching singers or, or trying to work with some singers on the break and reading Fred Moulton in relation to that. And I always remember Jose came up to me after the presentation and said, and this has to do with affect and feelings, right, Masi? Mm-hmm. And I said, you're right, because a break can, can be a violence. And there can be all kinds of feelings that go along with that. Um, and it just kind of it was just a question, a brilliant question that kind of made me accountable to just thinking think, wow. about it in, in uh, kind of more, more dimensions than I had been.
3: That's fascinating. Oh, wow. What that does remind me of, too, and that I've been thinking a lot about lately in the last few months of our work in particular, has been that, you know, that dawn also breaks, right? Yeah. Um, that there is, uh, that joy can flow from breaking mm-hmm. and that uh, it's it's when one thing softens enough to become another that it can be violent, but it can also be an allowing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm thinking for some reason right now, of course, I don't know. I'm thinking about becoming a mom, which has been the most transformative experience of, of probably of my life mm-hmm. and certainly of the last few years. And mm-hmm. that I... I didn't anticipate how entirely it would destroy me, <laughs> that it really broke me apart, yeah. and and I, it, and I guess it was love, but I wouldn't have called it that at first, yeah, because it was such um, because there was a destructive experience of of being disassembled for for a time, yeah. Yeah. And then if you can be taken apart and what you find there is a fierce gripping to life, mm-hmm. then you get to become a new thing. That's mm-hmm. what I felt. And that's when I started to become um, a mother, not only in the sense of mothering my beautiful son, my baby boy, but also coming into generationally um, not only a place of hunger, eating, consuming, asking, needing, wanting, but coming into my next moment of needing to be a feeder, a creator, a producer, a a nurturer, a tender. Of course, we are all always uh, all those things at once, but um, asking again and again the question that so many of our siblings have been yelling for years of if it's not us who will it be if it's not now when will it be and Mm -hmm. realizing there was no great parent who would come and 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 change things Mm -hmm. um so yes i think breaking as a practice and thinking about it for me lately as a way of claiming new gentleness
0: mm-hmm.
3: is um, is how I've been thinking in my in my work as a singer. I love it.
0: And I feel like this is going to be I'm, – I'm excited for your exercise. We're, we're going to get to it. But I, I feel like uh, this is so relevant because we are all – in a in a moment of of breaking or or brokenness i don't want to i guess i have to i've been trying to learn not to say we in these kind of blanket ways but so many of us so many of us are dealing with or experiencing a kind of a break and uh i think those who have been through something like that before, like you are saying, having been disassembled, and been able to recognize that there can be something even fiercer, and you, like your warrior in different ways can can come forth um, from this experience of being broken and and finding out what it means for you to be a mother, I think. That's encouraging because there are some who might never have had an experience like that and just feel like breaking means I'm gonna I'm never gonna be put together again, and it 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 actually can mean that all of these. I mean, we're in such we're in so much, much of the country is in such radical experiences of break and breaking and brokenness right now that it's I think encouraging and important to remember that. Good things and important things and fierce things, uh, and I mean that in um, not kind of just like a flip way, but like mm-hmm. st- like ways of strength can come through um, as a result of that.
3: Oh yeah, oh yes. It's it's um, the joy of reckoning. I think that there is um, the possibility. Um for a great cleaning out, <laughs> that mm-hmm. can feel really good. And I also think, I also think that some of us have had more of their fair share of breaking. Yeah. And have not experienced breaking into a vessel. And that's really what I'm talking about. Okay. That when you have, give yourself or are given the space to break and be held within that breaking, mm-hmm. that's the that's, um, that's transformative moment. So it's the difference between um, someone, you know, you've seen it, someone's screaming and crying on the subway or someone w- being held on the subway while they are <laughs> screaming and crying. It's mm-hmm. a radically different moment. Mm-hmm. And I do think we can make spaces for ourselves um, to break into so that we can break safely. Beautiful. And within the voice, I know we can. Mm-hmm. And I, so I turn to that again and again in myself, but also in the music we write and in, in the way that we work with the singers who sing our music, that hopefully we can create spaces together where the breaking is a safe action.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And I know that that is not so for so many Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and it can be dangerous then to express honestly. And we see see that now, we've Mm -hmm. seen that, the -hmm. danger of expressing that vulnerability.
0: Amazing, so will you
3: now share your exercise with us? Yes. Yay. Okay. Well, okay. So, 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 so what, what I like to start with when I am singing, I, I start from something very gentle, right? Just doing little, mm, mm. but let's say we've done that for a little while and okay. we've been gentle with ourselves mm. for a little while. <laughs> yes. Great. Then I, I like to explore going into the break and thinking about it at first as a grief sound. right? Okay. So if I go, uh, okay, I'm, tell me if this is too loud. <laughs> I go, hey, hey, hey. Hey.
1: Yes, yes. Hey, so-
3: hey. Uh huh. Letting the grief sound come when you are not actively in grief mm. can teach the body about the safety of grief too. Right. So, hey, Hey, hey! So the I'm using "hey" mm-hmm. as a way to access my break, regardless of where I am in my range. So uh-huh. it's also a kind of a yodel. Yeah, and um, and I'm going up and down my range, and and um, then when I get into the higher, hey, hey, the next thing I can do. Uh-huh. I think can also expand range because I think a, a lot of us imagine if we can't sing a, oh, a crystal clear tone in a high range that it yeah. doesn't count. But um, of course we make incredible range of, of sound all of our day. So if I think of it as laughter, you hear like, um, especially like teenage girls have this incredible quality of laughter <laughs> where they can go... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <okay. laughs> uh-huh. Uh, so living first in the in exploring your break for a while and then expanding it with the light joy sounds of giggling. Ah, uh, okay. Can be a great way to start not only for me it's a warm-up, yeah. um, and it's also a way for me when I'm writing Mm -hmm. to sort of force my hand in terms of the honest sounds the body makes when it's feeling a thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when I am full of joy, do I say, I'm happy, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe I go, ah! (laughs) (laughs) And so maybe it's both, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe because the transformation is important, but... But to first say, man, when I'm excited, my tone really does change. And I might go, oh, my God. Or I might go, oh, you're kidding. Oh, my God, you're kidding. Right? Yeah. These are the sounds of of good news. (laughs) Yes. Some of the sounds of good news. So why? what would happen if we sang with them? And could they access us beyond language
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, into something uh, old and something new? So, so the, making sounds of expression and not yet labeling them as singing. Yes. Um, these sort of er sounds of being a person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is my, is always, is my beginning, my beginning practice. I love it. Thank you so much,
0: Abigail. This was great.
3: You're welcome, Masi. It is a real honor. I am so grateful to be a a friend and a student of yours.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no. A teacher. (laughs) A teacher. That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll stay safe, stay strong, and return for future episodes when I plan to host guests including leading linguistics professor Anne Harper-Charity Hudley, sound designer and composer Andy Evan Cohen and musicologist Dylan Robinson speaking about his new book Hungry Listening resonant theory for indigenous sound studies until then